Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. When Shevkat Mirzioya became Uzbekistan's president in late 2016, he promised the old ways of governing the country were over. Mirzioya vowed to implement sweeping reforms, including giving the media much more room to report. He even encouraged journalists to report on issues that needed correcting in society and in government. But there are clearly still limits to what can be said or written in Uzbekistan, and several independent journalists and bloggers have run into trouble. The Uzbek Forum for Human Rights recently released a report entitled President's Broken Promises Put Journalists and Bloggers at Risk that looks at the fate of some of those who crossed unmarked boundaries and disseminated information. To discuss all this, I am joined by Umida Niazova, Director of the Uzbek Forum for Human Rights, which is based in Germany, and Matthew Schaff, rights advocate and advocacy director at the Washington-based organization Freedom Now. And both Umida and Matthew took part in preparing the Uzbek Forum for Human Rights Report. Thank you both for joining me. Uh, And Umida, let's start with you. And let's start with the change of leadership in Uzbekistan in late 2016. What did President Mirzioyev say about the media after he came to power or since he's come to power? Thank you, Bruce. Uh, With regard to President Mirziyoyev's promises, we cannot help but recall the fact that on this Sunday, July 9, uh, Uzbekistan will hold early presidential elections and Mirziyoyev will naturally win with an overwhelming majority. So no surprises are expected. And despite his largely deserved maybe, image of the reformer, hardly anyone was shocked that President Mirziyev has no intention of going anywhere at the end of his term. And we have seen it all before. And I would like to remind that both the past and the new recently adopted constitution of Uzbekistan provide for only two consecutive presidential terms for one person. So for the uh, past month of presidential campaigns, so President Mirziyev, he was also campaigning, uh, he has uh, reiterated his commitments to human rights and freedom of media in several speeches. Uh, on June 12, he said, uh, no one can argue with the fact that we have realized very great work to meet the needs of every person to elevate human dignity to the level of great politics. Um, A week later, in his address to mark uh, Uzbek Media Workers Day, he said that the media are are a bright guide and a mirror of um, reforms uh, and uh, that leaders, that uh, Uzbek leaders uh, must now think about what the media and bloggers have to say before making decisions. So previously, President Merziyev had stated his commitment to protecting and supporting journalists, saying that although others, uh, presumably close to him, had suggested that he should close the media and bring back censorship, he would never do that. And this follows even earlier statements in which he told journalists not to be afraid because he stands behind them. However, this and many other statements by Mirziyev about his commitment to respect human rights and freedom of speech are highly contentious, given the rising numbers of bloggers and activists who risked uh, exercising freedom of speech and expression only to find themselves in jail or subjected to heavy fines and intimidation. 
And uh, as we, we pointed in the report, in such an environment, uh, President Merziyev's calls to criticize the authorities and uh, calls to the bloggers and journalists not to be afraid because the president is behind them appear at the very least uh, irresponsible given the absence of protection that uh, put those who believed in him at risk. Um, I can continue. So, uh, and um, I... I recently spoke to a blogger uh, who said that in some respects it's even uh, harder to work now than in past because during Karimov regime the lines were clear, there was simply no freedom of speech and uh, you would be punished for any criticism of the authorities. And now uh, local journalists and bloggers, they're kind of navigating uh, a minefield and have to try to avoid kind of risky topics and define the uh, boundaries of what is uh, permitted themselves. Uh, and this, of course, leads to uh, self-censorship. Um, uh, certainly the main achievement of the new Uzbekistan is the uh, expansion of the scope of freedom of speech and expression and the ability to disseminate information and exchange opinion on the Internet, which so far has uh, remained uh, largely free. But uh, this kind of genie of freedom can be forced back uh, into bottle if uh, worrying trends to um, restrict the activists and uh, uh, journalists uh, and reporting of uh, critical um, bloggers and journalists continue. Okay, thank you, uh, Matthew. Let me bring you in here. You know, as, as Amita mentioned, when he came, when Mirzio came to power, of course, he said that you know you guys can you have an obligation actually to report and uncover the the shortcomings in society and government so that we can correct these kind of things. Um, but, but, and to be fair and, you know, to everybody, Gazeta Daruz and Kun Daruz, for example, but there's others, um, did seem to take him at his word and try to do this. Um, can you talk about some of the boundaries that, that journalists have or bloggers have encountered where all of a sudden, you know, there's these undefined boundaries, borders that you can't cross, but, but people have run up to run, run into them since, Mirzoev's statements. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. Uh, thank you, Bruce. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, first I want to say that uh, you know the Respect Forum's report is is excellent. We uh, unfortunately didn't participate in it. Uh, just a, a small clarification, but uh, but it's a great report, and we really appreciate the work they've done for this. You know, I, I really like the phrase uh, from the report that there was uh, has been an improvement in the media landscape, but not in media freedom in Uzbekistan. Uh, and immediate, uh, Umida and and, uh, and you had just uh, noted uh, some some improvements uh, since President Mirziyoyev uh, has come to power, uh, and certainly the number of media outlets has uh, expanded. Uh, there's more bloggers who are you know doing their thing, uh, expressing themselves online, and social media has has really uh, blown up and uh, become quite popular. But uh, censorship is alive and well, uh, and self-censorship is alive and well. And while the sort of the bounds of what is allowable to say may not be in law, uh, or they may not, may not be sort of as widely as understood as they once were in the country, they're still being enforced, uh, but perhaps by a different, different actor. So for example, um, with the recent constitutional uh, amendments that were passed a few months ago, uh, you know, I spoke with people, with several people who said that um, they were uh, asked to uh, come on the media and share their opinion about the constitutional reform only if their opinion was in support of the constitutional reform. And, uh, you know, in addition to that, 
you know, we understand that the incident with RFERL uh, specifically and reporting on corruption is also uh, sort of an indication of where some of the new lines are. Uh, certainly, the reporting on uh, on the the residents that uh, was reported to have been uh, used by the president and all of the the uh, everything that happened after that, uh, I, you know, I think is is a pretty clear indication of that. But you know, in addition to that, uh, there there's there's a variety of other other issues that where where censorship and self censorship is coming into play in in Uzbekistan these days. Uh, certainly, all the different cases that uh, that were highlighted in the report. You know, among them, corruption being one of them, um, and it's not always corruption at the highest levels. Uh, you know that I was just uh, discussing, but corruption at the lowest levels. So, for example, Adabek Satori, the blogger uh, who's also covered in this report, was talking about very local level corruption and corruption in uh, in the marketplace, uh, which uh, you know, well, well, quite small scale is uh, is really something that will touch touches the whole population. Everyone goes to the market, and so that's another area where. Uh, where where there continues to be uh, you know lines that that uh, that might be clear sometimes and not always clear you know and one other thing I want would want to mention is that uh, you know in addition to the existing laws that are used to persecute people for their expression we see uh, proposals to strengthen some of those uh, and we can talk more about it later uh, but uh, the information code proposal hints at additional the actually the potential for the introduction of, of more more concrete barriers uh, or limitations um, in particular uh, insulting or showing disrespect to the state or the president uh, as being uh, something that's not acceptable and then you know one other area is uh, promoting same-sex relations so you know certainly LGBT community uh, and expression ideas related to that uh, is is another no-go zone uh, but there's also many others. Oh, thank you, and Matthew. Let me let me follow up with that. Uh, you know that you said after the report on uh, the the executive estate outside of Tashkent and everything, they actually like fine tune the law, right, about this, so that it, and they're using this all the time now, correct? Yes. Uh, so in in uh, in uh, in the Uzbek Forum's uh, report, I mean that there uh, the the law insulting the president was was introduced, I believe, in twenty twenty one, and. You know, this is really problematic from the the, the human rights perspective. It's it's uh, it flies completely in the face of Uzbekistan's international obligations in this area, and uh, and yeah, really carves out protections for one person uh, in the country to you know prevent criticism of this person. When in reality, I mean, this person, you know, people who uh, are are running for positions, people who are policymakers, people who are uh, you know otherwise putting themselves out there, these are public figures, um, and the public's need to discuss them. To discuss their positions, their policies is is even more important than it is of private figures. And so, actually, the protections for free speech when it comes to talking about these people, their actions, what what you think about them, should be even higher uh, than it would for you know normal private private speech and private actors. Thank you, uh, Umida. You know, Matthew mentioned that um, you know corruption is one of the one of those unmarked lines that you got to uh, watch out for when you're reporting. But it's even kind of murkier than that in some ways, right? I mean, the media has reported on some officials who are corrupt or abusive in their positions, and they have been fired. And yet, there's these other officials that that are, seem to be untouchable. So it's it's very, isn't it kind of unclear to journalists and bloggers? You know, understanding that the president himself has called for the media to report on corruption so they can root it out. But there seems to be some people they can report on and some people they can't. Is this true? Yes, that's true. 
I wanted to mention also that uh, in December 2020, the administrative court was supplemented with the Article 202. It's a dissemination of false information, which leads to humiliation of the dignity or discrediting person in the media or internet. And uh, also this uh, article, the crime of disseminating false information in the media or online was added to the criminal uh, court in uh, also in December 2022. And uh, so as uh, Matthew noted, um, in 2021, new amendments were introduced um, including a new criminal provisions for public calls to mass uh, uh, disturbances and violence against citizens. Uh, so this gives the authorities a broader mandate to clamp down on freedom of expression. And uh, amendments included uh, public insult or defamation against the president online as a criminal offense, uh, carrying a penalty of up to uh, five years uh, uh, imprisonment. And... Um, yeah, so when we uh, studied the court verdict, so we noticed the kind of disaster state of the judicial system, which is uh, obviously ready to pass uh, judgment on the basis of uh, false or sometimes uh, completely absurd or even fabricated arguments. Uh, for example, uh, our report described an administrative case, case against the uh, blogger for disseminating information that uh, might harm a citizen. Uh, and uh, in this case, a blogger wrote a short text in a Facebook group about the death of a child in a kindergarten. So he wrote, a six-year-old girl died in a kindergarten in Jezak, and we are waiting for explanation from the district administration. So in this text, there was no name uh, of the child. There was no name of the kin- of the kindergarten. There was no information that would show uh, who he was uh, talking about. So now, uh, nevertheless, the two courts ruled uh, that the blogger disseminated information that could uh, somehow harm a citizen, and uh, only the Supreme Court overturned the decision. Uh, but it cost the blogger money to pay for the lawyer and more than a year in court. So, as I said, so in the last couple of years, laws have been passed that uh, limit freedom of speech, such as insulting the president. And also, as uh, Matthew uh, uh, said, there are two cases uh, in the report that um, illustrate the uh, use of this article. So, in one case, a blogger from Harism uh, in a kind of he was drunk. Uh, he used a fast, offensive language about President Mirziyev and sent an uh, audio tape of it to a group of uh, 20 people. Some time later, he deleted this audio file, but this was enough to sentence the blogger to a panel co- colony for three years. So in uh, another case, an activist from Jizak, Valijon Kalonov, he was sent to a psychiatric clinic for compulsory treatment after he was accused of uh, insulting the president on uh, internet. So he's uh, been um, there for over a year and uh, it's not clear when uh, he will be uh, released. And uh, I also wanted to... Um, so the case which uh, was not uh, edited in our uh, report, but it was... Uh, Remarkable. It was a case, uh, uh, the uh, Anor Bank, uh, the bank filed complaint to the uh, court uh, about um, 
me find it. The, yeah, sorry. So in April this year, uh, so Commercial Bank, Anor Bank, sued a small website that uh, produced a uh, half a hour uh, YouTube video program. And journalists from this website had interviewed two of the uh, bank's clients who complained that the bank was too slow in transferring funds. And uh, the basis of the bank's claim against the website was that the journalists who published the interview didn't ask the bank for a comment or explanation. And uh, that, uh, uh, that if they had the bank would have uh, explained that it had uh, acted according to the rules. So according to the bank, the clients were wanted to conduct the fin- financial transactions from uh, Cyprus, which requires additional f- uh, verification. But uh, so the clients were real, the stories were real, Maybe the video program uh, was one-sided, but it was not false. And the court ruled that the funder of the website must pay uh, $3 million to the bank for reputational damage. And, um, of course, this led to the kind of uh, dissolution of the website uh, uh, as the company is now bankrupt. So, uh, and... uh, these kind of cases, of course, they, they uh, give uh, the clear signal there is a certain, like, officials or certain corporations you, you, you cannot uh, criticize. And, uh, yeah, I can stop for now. I think I talked a lot. No, thank you. Um, and we're going to talk more about the individual bloggers here in just a second, but I, wa- I want to keep with the media for uh, the mainstream or the media outlets for just a minute too. There are subjects I mentioned. Corruption is one. Some officials are off limits, and and you mentioned that officials and institutions are are off limits. Whereas others seem to be fair game and kind of in line, keeping with Mirzioyev's you know appeals to the media to report on corruption. But there's other topics that come up that that have gotten media outlets in in trouble before. One is the the power energy shortages, electricity and heating shortages in the winter, where they've tried to report on it. And of course, everyone sees that there's a problem. But uh, some of these media outlets have been warned, I believe, about what they report. And of course, the other one is Karakal Pakistan. And we just saw that Gazeta Daruz put out an article on the one-year anniversary of Karakal Pakistan, which was taken down shortly after that. Uh, Matthew, can you speak a little bit about that? Sure, Bruce. Um, Certainly, uh, I mean, the as Amita was just saying, it's, uh, you know, criticism of the authorities in general is, is quite sensitive. And while there is space for that, uh, uh, certainly when it comes to uh, issues that, you know, there, there, there's a point where it is, uh, is, is above uh, what, what's allowable and in, in, uh, in, in what the, uh, the security services and others uh, will uh, not respond to, at least in, uh, in sort of a, in a legal or, or show of force way. Uh, and uh, and perhaps the media could uh, you know through the cases talk about some of the specific issues that that have been raised. C- certainly, gas prices uh, have uh, have been a very popular topic uh, in the country, uh, not only in Uzbekistan but across the world. And uh, when there were was the energy shortages and uh, and the gas prices were also quite high, people were talking about it, and the sensitivity of the issue led uh, the authorities to prevent uh, these folks from publicly. Uh, Expressing themselves or otherwise uh, freely expressing their opinions that are critical of the authorities, and so uh, you know, it's uh, we, we've been talking a lot about Mirzoyev, 
and the president. But also when it comes down to it, uh, you know, many of uh, the, the actions which contribute to censorship, uh, the actions which respond to people expressing themselves uh, or criticizing the authorities are done at the local level. Uh, and so it's not, uh, we're not necessarily talking about a nationwide policy. We're talking about local level leaders who are responding to the specifics of, of their region and the specifics of, of the people that are there. Uh, and so, well, you know, many things are the same across the country. I think that there's also some uh, differences in how this is playing out uh, when it also comes to the specific topics that are more sensitive than, than others. Now, Karl Karl Pakistan naturally rose to a national importance. You know, certainly it uh, relates specifically to Karl Karl Pakistan and its place within Uzbekistan and the rights of the people who live there. But when the authorities, you know, perceive that it otherwise threatened governance of the country or their own uh, control or rule, uh, then uh, we also see that the national authorities responded. So there was, as far as I understand it, the introduction of the, the National Guard in addition to uh, the actions of the local police uh, who responded to that. And, and I'm talking about specifically the protests. But then, uh, you know, throughout the process, throughout the, uh, the, the court process, uh, you know, we see that uh, the government was, uh, you know, at first uh, trying to be or apparently trying to be open uh, and uh, maybe that they had per perhaps learned some lessons from Kazakhstan and how uh, not only Kazakhstan had responded to uh, the January events, but also how Kazakhstan had responded to the international concern and criticism of, of its actions in that respect. So, for example, the Uzbek ambassador to the U.S. did a, a tour of meetings with human rights organizations, uh, ours included, to talk about how you know this was going to be investigated and so on and so forth. But you know, th this is not a podcast about Karko Pakistan, but there's been very uneven transparency about uh, what happened, about the government's response. So, for example, with the court process, uh, they had uh, you know, said, we're going to make this open. Uh, it is going to be live stream. This is new for Uzbekistan. See, we're being transparent. But what we see is that transparency has been actually really uneven. And we, you know, we, we suspect that it's related to these sensitivities um, that I mentioned before. And, uh, you know, the, this article uh, that came out that that was then immediately withdrawn also uh, is, is, is related to, to those sensitivities. Uh, and I mean, it's, it's exciting uh, in a certain sense that media outlets are, you know, seeing that this is an issue that they want to be looking into, that they want to be reporting, they want to be sharing it with the public, helping them understand what happened um, and what has happened since then. But, uh, you know, certainly a bit major disappointment that, that, that those, uh, that they weren't able to do that um, and that they weren't able to help Uzbekistan uh, really move on uh, from what happened in Karakal Pakistan but also uh, pursue accountability for what happened in Karakal Pakistan. Okay, thank you. Uh, Umida, I'd like to get your impression. I mean, Karakal Pakistan was the biggest violence in Uzbekistan since Andajan in 2005. Clearly a huge story in Uzbekistan. What do you think about the coverage of that so far? That's right. This is uh, taboo. And um, a few days ago, there was a an, uh, one year, like anniversary, one year anniversary of, of this um, uh, Karakal Pakistan uh, event, and I noticed that uh, 
there was no a single article in the major uh, media like Kunus or other websites about this event. It, and I think that it is uh, very clear. It shows that it, it was probably uh, in, instruction to the media sent that uh, don't uh, write anything. And uh, we have this case of Gazeta Us when the uh, article about Karakal Pakistan was just uh, moved from um, from their website. And uh, I recently spoke with uh, journalist Anora Sadekova. Uh, she was one of the initiator of the letter to the president. I think it was in, in March this year, but the uh, open letter uh, signed by more than 40 uh, journalists and bloggers about the uh, strict uh, but invisible uh, censorship. And uh, she said that uh, it's uh, ironically, so this uh, uh, reports of uh, threats against uh, bloggers and journalists intensified uh, just before the referendum on the new constitution, um, which has been sh- kind of shown as uh, like strengthening the rights and freedoms of Uzbek citizens. And uh, Anora said that uh, also there was a kind of instructions to the journalists and bloggers, not like better not to write anything about referendum. Don't uh, ask questions. So it, it, this event should just kind of go uh, smoothly. Yeah, there are uh, clearly, there are... Uh, Topics of taboo, uh, presidential uh, family is uh, uh, untouchable. Of course, uh, in the media, there is no any serious discussion about the absence of political opposition in the country. Or they are organizing so-called political debate in the media in the on the center on the tv between the candidates for the presidency but uh, president mirziaev himself himself is not attending of course there is a uh, there are many questions uh, also to him to his policy so this kind of um uh, questions uh, are not uh, allowed, uh, but at the same time, uh, we see that um, it's also very uh, risky to uh, criticize the becoming risky to criticize the local officials. And the case of uh, Otabek Satari, the blogger who was uh, one of the critics of the local Hakim of Sukhandarya region, uh, it uh, shows that uh, it's uh, how quickly the state can just silence the blogger. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, And a reminder, my guests are Matthew Schaff, a rights advocate and advocacy director at the Washington-based organization Freedom Now, and Umida Niazova, director at the Germany-based Uzbek Forum for Human Rights. And we're talking about the recent report uh, from the Uzbek Forum for Human Rights, entitled uh, President's Broken Promises Puts Journalists and Bloggers at Risk. Um, and let's talk specifically about some of these bloggers now uh, for the second half of the program. And Emilia, I'll start with you. But, you know, the one that I want to talk about first is is Valijan Kolonov, because he was actually sentenced to a psychiatric hospital. And that sounds a lot like the old Uzbekistan of Islam Karimov and not the new Uzbekistan of Shevkat Mirziyoyev. That's right. The case of uh, John Kalonov is very remarkable, and uh, also because uh, this is uh, uh, this is the first case when the uh, official the um, police used uh, after the amendments of the uh, uh, law 
about criticizing the uh, president uh, online. So he was sent to psychiatric cleaning uh, uh, clinic uh, for compulsory treatment, and um, he's been uh, there for over a year, and it's not clear when he will be released. And um, it is true that he did make an uh, offensive uh, remark about the president uh, um, on uh, one YouTube video comparing the president and his entourage to uh, rats. It may have been offensive, but uh, like as Matthew uh, also was telling in this case, there's a question of proportionality of punishment. And also we know that officials and public figures appear to be more easily offended than uh, most of us. And um, I also wanted to mention the case of uh, uh, Olemjon Haidarov because uh, he was uh, he he tried to report about uh, gas shortage and this is also the, there was a taboo uh, topic and uh, he, in December last year he went to interview the factory workers uh, who um, complained that uh, the factory is not working uh, because of the shortage of the gas and they're not uh, receiving salaries. And uh, for interviewing these workers and posting the uh, videos uh, online, he was uh, accused of violating of violation of the order of organizing or holding meetings, rallies, uh, uh, or demonstrations, like uh, simply uh, the uh, blogger who went to interview the real people with the real problems, he posted the video online, and uh, somehow he was found by the court of organizing this, um, uh, organizing some uh, demonstration. Okay, thank you, uh, and Matthew. Of course, you're free to talk. Both of you, you can talk about either of these cases, but I'm just going to ask each of you specifically to comment on one case, although, again, feel free to comment on any of the cases that I mentioned. Uh, Matthew, uh, you mentioned at the start Atabek Sotari, right? Um, and his his case, he was reporting on local, on corruption. Um, can you can you kind of walk us through what happened to him, what he was reporting on, and how, what happened to him in the end? Sure. Uh, just to briefly on uh, on Kamalef and, uh, and his situation, one aspect um, that we see in this case, and we see in many other cases, the use of expert witnesses and expertise. Uh, and this is a big problem in Uzbekistan. Certainly, you know, court processes all the time include expert opinions uh, analyzing one thing or another. But what we see uh, in, in Uzbekistan is that uh, defendants basically have no opportunity to, uh, to present their own expertise. Uh, and so essentially, there's state-appointed experts who provide uh, generally state-appointed, sorry, state-approved uh, you know, expert opinions that then uh, are le- uh, lead to uh, these convictions. You know, in the case of, uh, of Kolonov, uh, there was an expert who said that uh, he exhibited uh, mental illness, uh, and that was the basis um, through which he was uh, committed. And, and this happens across, uh, across many of these different cases. Now, uh, with uh, Atobek, uh, so my organization, Freedom Now, did provide legal assistance to him in the international appeal to the, the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention. Um, and so, you know, Atabek is a, is a blogger and uh, has reported on a variety of issues of local interest, uh, but certainly corruption and concerns about corruption, local business and local authorities. Uh, and during the pandemic, uh, at a time when there were price controls in the country, because, uh, you know, they were the, the authorities were rightfully concerned about uh, high prices and inflation, 
uh, he went to the market to to go and and see if uh, the market sellers were actually complying with these price controls. And uh, there ended up being a conflict, uh, and his phone was in, in that conflict was somehow damaged and was also taken from him. And uh, and so he had spoken with the market director, uh, asking uh, for his phone back, which he got, but it was broken. Uh, and so he had asked the market director to replace the phone. Uh, and it was at the point where the uh, officials from the market gave him uh, the new phone. So, you know, they agreed to replace his phone uh, that was damaged in the scuffle. Immediately after that, he was arrested by the authorities. And so he was arrested uh, and, and tried on a variety of administrative violations. And then there were additional uh, charges against him, uh, criminal violations related to his reporting and uh, so they had alleged, for example, that he had extorted the the phone uh, from uh, from the mar- local market. Uh, there were also uh, accusations that he had uh, slandered various officials, uh, and in the end, uh, was uh, was convicted and sentenced to, I believe, it was uh, six years in prison. Now, I, one thing I think that's interesting about uh, Satori's case is uh, is that really the the authorities didn't even try to uh, defend their actions in a serious way. There was, you know, the accusation made uh, under very vague laws. Uh, there was a court process that was really problematic. Uh, and so they never really had to seriously make the case of uh, why, you know, Adebeck's, uh imprisonment was necessary, you know, why he had violated the law. And in the opinion from the Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, so this is this UN body that uh, hears cases and then, you know, makes determinations about whether they think someone is being detained in violation of their rights and their uh, detention is arbitrary. They noted, for example, uh, signs that really the whole case was fabricated against him, that, you know, all of the, uh, all the, you know, supposed witnesses, for example, had appealed to the authorities at the exact same time. Uh, So there were some suspicious facts of the case. And, uh, and, and they indicated that there was indications that it was done in a deliberately planned manner. So in the end, they found that there was basically no legal basis for his detention, that he was in fact persecuted for exercising his rights, and that he was being discriminated discriminated against because of his uh, critical position with respect to the authorities. And so, uh, I mean, this is uh, we have uh, you know his case has been has been reviewed uh, by uh, a variety of different institutions. And uh, you know we have this uh, this ruling from the working group on arbitrary detention, which has called for his uh, his being freed from prison, uh, for all the charges to be uh, withdrawn, and for him to be re- rehabilitated uh, in uh, in the country, which uh, is uh, involves a variety of different things, but certainly uh, getting out of jail and having the charges withdrawn um, and the conviction withdrawn would be a part of that process. Okay, uh, unfortunately, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, you know, it goes without saying that uh, the the authorities have not done that. Uh, he remains in uh, detention, as far as we understand that, and there continue to be concerns about his treatment in detention as well. And, okay, and uh, thank you. I just want to add, yeah, regarding Sotari, just uh, quickly that in May last year, a uh, member of uh, human rights organization is Gulik. He was able to meet uh, Sotari in prison. And uh, so Otobik uh, said that he had uh, believed in president's uh, you know, for words and uh, became a blogger, but ended up a victim of uh, corruption. 
you know, let me ask too. It, it, I seem to remember that very recently, one of the officials that Satari had named and alleged was involved in corruption was actually is now under investigation for corruption. Isn't this true? Absolutely, yes. Uh, so the Hakim, uh, the c- city mayor of Termes, who testified in court that Satori engaged in extortion, he himself was arrested uh, in October last year and charged with a number of serious crimes, so including uh, corruption, embe- em- embezzlement, and uh, so despite despite this, uh, the Supreme Court upheld uh, Satari's uh, sentence. Okay, uh, thank you. Amazing, simply amazing. Um, you know, I want I want to mention the case of uh, Fazihui Arif Arif Hojayev. Um, can you, uh, Mita, Can you tell us a little bit about him? He's a little bit different than than the other bloggers. Yes, uh, this is also a very remarkable case. Actually, the uh, Fazil Hoja Arif Hojayev. He's considering to be a religious blogger. He is a religious man. He was sentenced in January last year to seven and a half years in prison for one post on Facebook page in which he disputed whether Muslims should celebrate Christian holidays. And this alone was considered by court to qualify as a extremist religious views. And uh, frankly, so I read the uh, the case uh, the, uh, of uh, Arif Hajjaev and the court verdict. There is nothing more. The short post about this um, celebration of Christian holidays was enough for the Uzbek court to send this uh, man to seven and a half years in prison. Okay, we're running close to the end, but I, you know, uh, Mati, I want to ask you about the case of Miraziz Bazarov. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Sure. Uh, Miraziz is uh, an outspoken blogger. Um, he has, you know, uh, shared his opinion uh, and reported on a variety of different issues, uh, certainly corruption, you know, the actions of the authorities. You know, one thing that sets him apart uh, is that he also, uh, exp- you know, shared his opinion about LGBT rights and in particular in a, a more supportive uh, way than, than is common in, in Uzbekistan uh, for people to share publicly. And for that, he, uh, he was brutally beaten and uh, is, is uh, under house arrest. I believe he also was sentenced to house arrest for, seven, uh, for three, three and a half years for, for this. Um, and uh, certainly his case had received a, a, a good deal of international attention. Uh, part of that being that it, you know, there were some strange, strange features. So for example, he uh, had, uh, you know, apparently was involved in uh, some kind of gathering of K-pop and uh, anime fans. And then uh, on the same day, but later uh, in the day, uh, he was, uh, in fact, assaulted uh, and, and ser- quite, quite seriously injured uh, in injuries that he continues to, to deal with, as, as far as I understand it. Uh, but, uh, you know, right now there, uh, he's under house arrest. Uh, he is uh, quite limited in what he can do. So... You know, for example, he's a, I believe, a psychologist, but uh, he's prohibited by the court from working as a psychologist. He's also prohibited from using the internet uh, and from doing other basic things during his house arrest. Uh, and this is all for, uh, you know, for expressing himself uh, on, on the internet. Now, uh, you know, it's interesting, uh, Miraziz uh, uh, had, uh, had spoken about LGBT issues, and there's another blogger uh, who was also 
connected to the previous case that we just spoke about uh, with Arif Hajayev. Uh, and this was actually the blogger uh, who was on the other side of this conflict. Uh, and that's Abur Mukhtar Ali, uh, who is also a religious blogger, but uh, you know, for some reason hasn't had a problem with the authorities despite uh, really being a flamethrower with the kinds of uh, issues that he raises and the kinds of things that he says online, certainly about LGBT community, but not only. Now, uh, you know, perhaps uh, one difference is that uh, uh, Abur Mukhtar Ali is actually a government employee uh, and is affiliated with the state uh, religious authorities. But clearly, you know, there's different rules for different people. Um, and uh, it appears that, you know, relationship from uh, with the state might might help. Uh, but some, certainly also the issues uh, are, are are quite important. Yeah, I'll stop there for now. OK, great. Thank you. Uh, time for the last question, although feel free to mention any comments you want that you think uh, some topic we haven't addressed. But my last question is, is is there any difference between the media in Karimov's time and the media in Mirzioyev's time? And I'll start with you, Matthew. Certainly. Uh, certainly there is. Um, there's more media. There is. Uh, there appears to be more space. But we're seeing that change. Uh, you know, over the last few years, it seems like the uh, the space that opened up um, in President Missouri's first few years of, of governance uh, is closing. Uh, and I think uh, the, uh, the the cases that are, are documented in the Uzbek Forum for Human Rights report are quite indicative of this. Um, that uh, these people have been targeted for for what they're saying, for what they've peacefully expressed, and you know, there's been a variety of other uh, uh, incidents that we've spoken about today, and, and others that we haven't, that I think are also indicative of this uh, closing space. Now, uh, I mean, this this runs uh, completely against what the Uzbek authorities are telling uh, their international partners. So, for example, there there was Uzbekistan Day on Capitol Hill recently. Where Senator Sadiq Safoyev, his first, the first thing he said was, uh, Uzbekistan is prioritizing human rights. Now, uh, I think this report is quite indicative of the fact that that's not the case. But I, I sincerely hope that the authorities do take the, these, uh, these obligations uh, more seriously, their international obligations and their domestic obligations, and begin really tackling some of these challenging problems and, and prioritizing human rights uh, like they say they have. Okay, great. Thank you. Umida, give the last word to you. And as someone who's been the target of the Uzbek authorities in the past, is there any difference you see? What, what are the differences between Karimov's old Uzbekistan and Mirzioyev's new Uzbekistan? Yes, there is a difference, of course. Uh, I've been arrested and uh, also sentenced to uh, jail for having Human Rights Watch uh, report in my uh, files, in my notebook, which was confiscated. And um, like still, compared with uh, Karimov's uh, time, we can say that uh, there is uh, more freedom, especially on the internet. But at the same time, there is a, uh, the internet and social media was not so developed at that time as it is uh, used uh, now. But Karimov uh, era, Karimov time, uh, was not also the uh, the same. Uh, so this uh, and this is not the first time uh, kind of Uzbekistan has experienced the kind of thaw 
And uh, in the early uh, 2000, uh, dozens of uh, offices of um, major international media, for instance, Ozot League had an office in Tashkent, and uh, international organizations, Freedom House, Human Rights Watch, they were also registered in Uzbekistan. But uh, following the uh, Andijan massacre in 2005, this uh, Kind of period ended. So that's why uh, this um, recent trend is very alarming. So we now we can say that uh, compared to this brutal, most repressive period of Karimov's time, it is better now, but we really don't know what will be in the future. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, and we have run out of time, So, but just a reminder to our audience that you can uh, read this report, President's Broken Promises Puts Journalists and Bloggers at Risk, at uzbekforum.org. Thank you very much, Umida, and thank you very much, Matthew, for being on the program. And a big thank you, as always, to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjlis podcast producer in Washington, D.C. And a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjlis podcast or the Central Asian Focus newsletter by visiting Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's website at rfarl.org. Thank you very much, and we'll be back next week. Bye-bye.